I think this happens a lot in the industry as we hear other people say something doesn't work. They're like one in a hundred people get clients from Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever, but not even one in a hundred are good at marketing. So I made a huge switch and I said, what if I'm the most active financial advisor on social media? And what if instead of focusing on all great posts, what if I could do five good posts a day? And that is where I started to see things take off. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Thomas Kopelman, welcome to Bridging the Gap, man. So uh, excited to have you, honored to have you. How are you doing today, man? I am doing well. Thanks for having me, man. I'm glad that we finally made this work. Obviously, nobody else knows this, but I totally botched the first time. It just didn't end up showing up. First time ever, but today we're here. And maybe I've gotten smarter over the last month and it'll be a better episode. Hey, I, I have no doubts about it. I think that it's definitely going to be 10x and it happens to the best of us. I, I would say I'd be lying if I said I've never, it's never happened to me. But tell everybody, where are you podcasting us from? Where are you, where are you joining us from today? Yeah, so I'm out of Indianapolis. I guess a little bit of background in my story is I'm from like a suburb of Chicago. If you're not from the area, if you're from the area, not a suburb of Chicago, like kind of on the Illinois, Wisconsin border and ended up, I, I went and played basketball at Minnesota State, got hurt, decided I didn't want to play anymore, went to Butler in Indianapolis and kind of lucked into the industry. Like I had no idea what I wanted to do, ended up at a broker dealer and transition along, ended up in the independent space, which is where I wanted to go. Now launch my own firm. And now I have clients really all over the country. And I live in downtown Carmel, which is like this suburb of Indianapolis. It's ranked the number one suburb in the country. I absolutely love it. Might move, but I'm in one of those situations where I have no reason to move, but I also have no reason necessarily to stay. So and we're, yeah. in, we're in Indianapolis and we're figuring it out as we go. Now, the, how is it rated the number one suburb in the country? What makes it the number one suburb? It just doesn't have as many chain stores or chain restaurants. Like, what is the what's the reasoning? So I live in this downtown area, and like right across from me is a brewery, two other restaurants, a coffee shop, a big outdoor turf area with outdoor seating with fireplaces, and like a, a TV screen that sports are always on. It's just like it's there's almost no crime. It is a decently wealthy area. Like, I mean, you know, the police are like, they're worried about traffic tickets and that's about it. And really good school district, really good restaurants. I live on this trail that goes 40 miles long all the way to downtown Indy and up. And I don't know, I just love it. I think the quality of life here is really good because there's, I, I'm still walking distance from like all my favorite restaurants, great coffee shops, the a brand new public library just opened. But... It's not very expensive and it's a really slow paced life versus like a down, like a normal downtown is like traffic everywhere and all this. And we don't really have any of that, which is great. I, I, I love that. And, you know, Indianapolis holds a special place in my heart because I was there about maybe 15 months ago really? uh, to watch Georgia win their first national championship since 1980. Uh, so it holds a special place in my heart. I was literally only there for 20 hours. But it was the best 20 hours uh, that I can remember in a long time in one city. So, uh, you know, it always holds a special place. I, I like fell in love with basketball as a kid because of JJ Redick. And so I'm a huge Duke fan and I got to see Duke win a national championship in Indianapolis when I was in high school too. So we have that connection on our teams. It's a good city for our teams. I love that. Yeah, it's a great spot. So we, I mean, we could talk sports all, all day. I mean, maybe <laughs> we should just do that. I think that that may be 
an interesting podcast. I don't know if I have enough. Well, actually, I do have strong feelings on, on sports, so maybe we could do that. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll shift gears into kind of the podcast here. And, you know, as I was saying to you before we got on, I just think that, you know, I, I, I love what you're doing, man. I think that you have created such a, a great presence in social media and, and your content creation is by far and away some of the best I've seen on social platforms. And I, I, it's so inspiring. So it's just an honor to be able to talk with you and learn. I, I love learning from people that are smarter than me. And, and I think this is one of those conversations. And you gave us a little bit of your background of how you got to your own firm today. But I'm curious, you know, you said you played basketball in college. Was this the journey? Was this the job that you thought you would have when you were 13 years old? Like, what did the 13-year-old Thomas Kovalman think that he was going to be at the age of 25, 30, 35 years old? Yeah, so I I was pretty good at basketball. Like, I, I didn't think I was going to the NBA, but I thought I was going to go play overseas was, like, my always dream. Was like, I was going to play basketball forever. Like, that's what I lived and breathed. And, you know, coming out of high school, I had a bunch of Division One and Division Two offers. I broke my school record, won over 100 games. Like, everything that was, like, putting me in that way. But then all of a sudden, I just had, like, this huge burnout. And it felt like a job. I was injured, had a bunch of rehab. And so I was like, I, I really don't know. And in college, I did six internships. So I did everything from an insurance firm to consulting. I actually did consulting twice to a startup to I was at Eli Lilly in marketing. And like all of them, I, I honestly like hated. I was like, man, if this is, I, I remember thinking that I would love to be a stay at home dad, actually. I was like, <laughs> I was like, this sucks. Like I, I just, before that, like when I was in high school, I had a business where I trained some kids basketball wise. And then when in college, when I was done, I had a business training people on nutrition and working out. And those gave me a lot of uh, meaning. Like I felt like I was, I was directly impacting people, helping share knowledge that I have and kind of like help them get that light bulb moment. But also realizing that in both of those people really need a partner that holds them accountable, that can push them harder. And I never felt that in any of my jobs. It felt like, here's my project, hand it to you. We never think about it again. And so I realized that in that type of job, I'm super average because there's no difference. A lot of it's politics really and like how you work your way up, right? Like, you know, my sister-in-law was, she was at Eli Lilly and she had like one of the earliest ever promotions to a level and it made it all the way up to the, basically the CMO who denied it and said she was too young. And like, to me, that's what happens in a lot of big companies is like, difference between good to great is not even necessarily the difference between you getting farther along. And also I just didn't really feel the impact that I was having. And maybe that's selfish, but like, I'm really motivated to work hard for myself. Right. And so like, mm. and what I'm doing right now, I have no limit in how much money that I can make or what I can do because every single decision I make impacts me and it impacts my clients. And, you know, I look back and I don't think anybody worked harder than me in basketball. Like I, I put in the work because I watched what the work would do for me. And that's the exact same thing I'm able to do in my business now. And that's what helps me work really well is like, I either ruin my life or I make my life. Like there's nobody else who makes that difference. And to me, that's what pushes me to work hard. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's so, I mean, that's a unique trait, that drive, that internal drive to go and 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 kind of be able to execute at a high level creatively and tactically with a such a blank slate of opportunity. I think that that's such an awesome trait to have. And you mentioned something early on in, in that in that answer about you burned out of basketball. Like you had this burnout moment, but you know, that was your passion and you were really great at it. Was there any lesson that you learned 
from that that burnout stage that you carry over into your profession because like that was something you loved and that you had the freedom the more you work the better you got and you're saying the same thing about professionally like is there any lessons you learned from that period that you've taken to the profession now to ensure that you don't burn out of something you're so passionate about and that you have so much freedom around today yeah i uh that's a really good question and never been asked that but what i will say is i don't necessarily think i learned this the answer I'm gonna give you from that. But what I learned is that for my business and for myself, the best thing that I can do is excel at my strengths and and, and spend time doing what I love the most. Because like, you know, this, like, like creating content, going on podcasts, marketing, growing the business, meeting with clients, getting clients to understand the value I'm gonna have and work with me. I feel like I'm pretty much an A or A plus in that role. Like I feel like, I look across the industry and I'm probably in the top 1% there. Financial planning wise, I feel like I'm good at it, but I feel like there's people who love it way more than me. Like they they feed off of reading the estate planning documents and the equity comp details and the business financials. To me, that is part of the work that I have to do, but not forever. So I already have a CFP on staff. I already have an assistant who does a lot of my note taking and administration work that I don't like. I'm bringing on an EA who then is going to take over for the CFP after about six to 12 months of learning because he's been filing taxes and doing tax planning for 10 to 100 million revenue businesses for a while. And he loves that kind of stuff. So I'm building this role that is energizing to me. Like I'm going to meet with clients not all the time, like only some of the time. And I'm going to get people to come work with us. I'm going to grow the business and I'm going to own that lane and bring in people to, to be where they're an A plus at. And I think all that's going to do is help us grow more. I like, I think people look at those decisions and be like, oh, that's a cost to me. But even if it was just a cost and it gave me back more time to do more that I love, I would do it. But I know all it's going to do is help the the fees that we charge to be higher, the work that we do to be better, and for all of us to make more income in the end too. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, to deliver more value to more people, right? That's what it's all about. That's the name of the game. And I think that the idea of that mentality of saying, hey, this is where I want to go and I'm going to take action. I'm not going to rely on others to figure out how to take the action to get me to that point. I know where I want to be and I'm going to take the action. I, I think that that's something that too many people say like, well, over time, it'll just figure itself out. No, you've got to take the action and get the people in the place and the process is there. One other thing too, that now I think about it, the realization I have is that like people can burn you out. So I didn't really like the people I was around where I was playing basketball. I didn't feel motivated by the leaders above me. I didn't feel like I was becoming a better person. And I think like you can love the work, but if you work with people you hate, it's not going to be fun. So I'm really adamant about taking clients that I really want and believe will be a good fit for us and hiring people that I really want to work with too. And I think that will help as well. Yeah, I think that that's so key. And, 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 you know, that's a different mentality than has been in our industry of saying, like, being very selective of clients, especially like early on as you're growing a business. Everybody was like, I'll just take anybody and everybody because I don't know if I'll ever get anybody ever again. And the idea, though, is if you be selective, you're going to be better to them, which then is going to help you grow your business better because you're going to be just a better all around advisor and wealth exactly. manager from that standpoint. I want to shift to your strategy around marketing and and really specifically around building content. I, you know, I listened to the Proud Mouth podcast with Matt Holleran that you were on, which, you know, was really eye-opening to me about building content and, and something 
that I think is really valuable for everybody else. And, you know, like the other day, and not to call you out on this, but like when we were having the podcast last time, I checked your Twitter like the day that day in the morning, like like 11 a.m. I think you had like four tweets, not even retweets, just four tweets that you had out there. And and you already had over like 8,000 views on those tweets, on like four tweets. That that type of, of engagement within wealth management content is like staggering. Like I looked at some other people that I know in the industry and they had, you know, after four hours, like maybe a hundred to 120 engagement. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, what do you do to help create these content ideas that become so viral? Like, what is the strategy that you put in place to create engaging and viral, so to say, content? Yeah. Well, I think there's like a bunch of steps through this, but I think like I look back in this last month, I was speaking at Jolt. I had another conference I spoke at and I was super busy and I had the worst Twitter month I had. And I had 2.12 million impressions in that 28 day period of time. So I think that like first and foremost, and I really hope I'm polished on this because I've just talked about niching down in marketing and then I had a 10 minute TED talk on digital marketing yesterday. So hopefully I can bring all of these things to light. But I think um, first and foremost, like when I, I worked with Justin Castelli before this and what I knew from the very first day starting the industry is I hated the way that marketing was done and how selling was created. Like when I worked at the broker dealer, it was, you know, go to every networking event, go to your friend's wedding, go to volunteer opportunities and come away with a list of people that you're going to have a meeting with. And to me, I absolutely just hated that idea. And I had this revelation and I pull out this quote all the time, but I basically, my thought is if financial planning and advice is so valuable, why am I selling to everybody I know versus attracting people that need me? And I think people don't realize that. I think that they think that we're in a sales job, but then they say everybody needs financial planning. And so if everybody does, then shouldn't we be able to attract people who know that, right? And so as soon as I had that belief, I was like, what's the best way to get people? Wait, every other industry gets their people from social media. If I'm a service-based business, shouldn't my main objective be to educate people so that when things get above their head, they have to they want to come reach out to me because they know I know what I'm talking about. So when I got started with content, I took a step back and said, what is my goal through content? And first and foremost is I want to be seen as a subject matter expert to the exact people I'm working with. So at first I had to figure out who I'm going to work with, right? I have to have a niche to talk to because it's just too hard to, to be like, I work with retirees. And actually I hear this all the time. I talk to advisors, they're like, help me on my marketing. I do some consulting for them. I'm like, who do you want to work with? They're like, I want to work with accumulators in their thirties and forties and then retirees. So they want to work with everybody. Right. And it's like, tell me the first blog post you're going to write to that audience. You can't right? because you don't know what relates to them. And so you have to speak to a specific segment of people. And mine is actually broader than most, right? Like mine is mostly it, what, what it sits around is, is millennials. So late twenties, early forties, the life stages is the similarities. And then I do business owners. And then I do people with equity compensation and taxes are almost the most important thing for both right? Like tax planning, there's so much going on and we can add so much value tax planning that I can speak to so many of them and they both view themselves as owners. Like the equity comp people view themselves as having ownership in a similar way to business owners. So I have a lot to write and then I have specific differences to both. Um, and to be honest, like I could narrow it down to just one, but I like it. I like both. So I'm going to stick with it and, and that's going to be okay. So first objective was 
be seen as a subject matter expert. And I think that was the most important. I think way too many people think that you do that through your CFP or whatever other industry designations that no consumer cares about, right? That is the bare minimum of what I think qualifies you for somebody. And like, I don't have my CFP because I feel like I built my credibility a different way. And now I'm too far along to be like, I can't just carve out that many hours to go back and get my CFP, especially if I'm bringing on people to be the CFPs of our firm. And that's not even going to be the main role that I have. And I would say, but that is by far the most important thing that I was trying to do. Second thing is I didn't want to sell through my content. I just wanted to educate. I think if we look across and everybody distrusts our industry because the main role and the main way that we talk to people is come work with us. You need to sit down. You need to see the best thing I have, blah, blah, blah. There's no education. And so my focus was, can I educate people so much that they they take it? So like, hey, they see something about emergency funds. They see something about Roth versus traditional. They see something about 401ks. They get all of that. And then they've also seen that I've posted about like ISOs and 83B elections and AMT. And they're like, well, that's confusing, but at least it doesn't apply to me. Then they get that new job and they're like, oh man, I got ISOs. I need Thomas. I, I need him to help me. He's the only advisor that I've seen educate for free and never ask me of anything. And so once I knew those two things, I knew I had to start creating a bunch of content, focus on education. But what I always heard from advisors is one, Twitter doesn't work. Two, use LinkedIn. And three, focus on quality over quantity. And so that's what I did. I did all of those things and I still started to get some good traction, but I started to realize that like, I don't learn anything on LinkedIn. To me, I, I, I scroll and you know, you maybe you randomly engage like everybody else, you say great post or like good info or really inauthentic things. But then I was like, man, I scroll Twitter and I'm, I'm following great CPAs, uh, great estate, estate planning attorneys, great, you know, 10 different things. And I learned a ton. And so I was like, well, maybe other people like me, if I'm trying to work with people pretty similar to me, like 20s, 30s, 40s, accumulators, business owners, learners, that's probably where they're at. And so then I switched over and said, I'm going to put all my time into Twitter. I really think that this is the place that I could work and, and get clients. I just had been listening to 50-year-old advisors tell me they don't. And I think this happens a lot in the industry as we hear other people say something doesn't work. They're like one in a hundred people get clients from Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever, but not even one in a hundred are good at marketing. So like, I wouldn't ask somebody who never played basketball if I could make it and play college, right? It's be like, you were never going to make that. Like it, it's not the algorithm or the form. It's actually the person and the lack of, of skill and determination and hard work that they're actually willing to put in. So I made a huge switch and I said, what if I'm the most active financial advisor on social media? And what if instead of focusing on all great posts, let's say that's one great post a day, what if I could do five good posts a day? And that is where I started to see things take off. And so I think people hear that and they think it's hard. And I think it is. I, I think it. you have to build to that. I don't think somebody starts and says, Okay, I look at Thomas. Thomas does about five plus tweets a day. He does two LinkedIn posts a day. He does a podcast a week, a blog post a week, a newsletter a month, a, a client newsletter. There's just no way I can do all of that, right? And the thing is I built up to it. So I have a great blog post that I wrote on Kitsis's blog that takes everybody through like the path I did. But I started with just a blog that was once a week. And then I'd post about the blog on Wednesday. And then I would try to have one other post on Monday and Friday. I did that for a while and that probably took me like 10 hours a week, but it was early on 
and then I got better at it. Now, maybe I cut down the time in half and I said, great, now I'm going to add in the podcast. I started to do the podcast, got used to the cutting, the editing, the practicing, blah, 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 cut down the time. And so I was back to 10 hours. Now I, now I cut that back down. Then I added my newsletter, got good at that once. And then it cut down and then I was like, okay, great. Well, now I'm going to increase how much I post. And along the way, as I did this, I got better at it for one and two, I built more of a bank of content. So right now when I do all my posting, I schedule out three posts a day, every single day on Twitter is my form of, I will always stay active. It doesn't matter how busy I am. I know then that at my worst, I'm posting three times a day. But then most times I probably post three to five more times a day as I walk away from a conversation and have something I thought about. Or, you know, I'm, I'm working on a case for a client. I'm like, oh, I need to go learn this. Like half of my blog posts and things are like, oh, I have a client where I'm gonna have to do an 83B election for, let me get all the details. And I'm why wouldn't I just turn it into a blog post? Because if I wanna be able to explain it to my client, I should be able to explain it to everybody else that I'm writing to. And so part of it is like, this is a way for me to learn more. You know, I'm five years into this and I think I gotta be 10 to 15 years of financial planning knowledge and education in simply because of all of the education that I've even had to do just around content. Because it's one thing to be able to like service level say it, it's another thing to be able to explain it where people walk away and they get it in simple terms. There's so much there. I mean, I was just drawing down notes there and, and I wanna touch on a few things. Yeah. I think that the, the concept of not selling through content, but educating, right? It reminds me of like the soft sell, like, hey, I'm just gonna tell you how to do it and you could probably go do it yourself and I hope that you go do it yourself and take this knowledge and implement it, but likely you'll need someone eventually and you'll remember me at that point. And it's the idea of soft selling and leading with value, right? Leading with what's valuable to the reader, not what's valuable for me from that standpoint. I think that that authenticity comes through. You can try that, but if you're not truly authentic about it, then people are going to read through that pretty quickly. And, you know, I, I, I love that idea of being the most active financial advisor and how you use that analogy of like, I'm not going to ask someone about basketball if they've never played basketball. And, and that's why I think this industry has been slow to adapt and adopt is because we get all of our insight from the people that haven't done it the same way. And they've been so cognizant to stay away from it. But one thing that you said at the beginning was you said you had the worst month of, of tweeting, but you still had 2.1 million impressions. And I think that when people think about that, to your point of saying like, well, you know, the, Thomas says all this, like, there's no way I can do all this. It's like impossible. I'm never going to get there. I think that there's another set of people that say, well, 2.12 million impressions. I mean, Thomas just told me what it is. I need to have a, I need to be a subject matter expert. I need to sell value, lead with value. And I need to do more, basically more quantity over quality. Like as opposed to being great, just do more good as opposed to less just great. And they're like, okay, I'm just going to go do that. I'm going to go to Twitter. It's worked for Thomas. And I'm just going to start doing it. And then after a month, they're like, I only got like 300 impressions. There's no way I'm going to get there. So I'm curious as like, what has that journey been? How did that progress to the point where you had your worst month and it still resulted in 2.1 million impressions or 2.2 million impressions? What did that look like? How long did you, yeah. did you continue to post things that you thought were good that just got no traction? Yeah, I think that the the whole point of what you're talking about right here is managing expectations. I think the reason why so many advisors say that they they failed at social media is because they give up before it happens. They hear from other people like, oh, I heard Joe Schmo in a different industry. It took him three months. He started getting clients. 
Well, it's different when you're selling a $149 course or a $100 workout plan than like me, my minimum fee model is $9,000 a year. Like that takes way more to get people to, to trust and want to do that. So like I tell everybody like one year should be your bare minimum. Like if, if you expect one year and you hit one year, you're one of the best. Most people I'd say it's two years to three years, but I think as we talk about this, like you were saying, hey, people worry about the content, like what are they gonna post? But like as a financial advisor, let's sit there and let's just hit the main categories of things that you talk about. Cash flow. Tell me you can't come up with 10 different points about cash flow. Okay, investing. Tell me you can't come up with probably 50 points on investing. Taxes, same thing. Estate planning, same thing. Retirement, same thing. Planning for education, same thing. We have an industry that is so vast. The amount of things that we talk about is so vast if you can't come up, like I, I look right now, I've written a blog post for over three years. I have a notion page that has like 110 blog post ideas that I haven't even written. I think that as a financial advisor, if you feel like you don't have enough ideas to talk about, your knowledge level is way too basic because there's so much. And then the other thing that goes into people's head is they're like, well, I'll, I, I, there's already blog posts about Roth IRAs. Why would I write that? Well, the people you're working with aren't necessarily Googling Roth IRAs and going to Investopedia. They're maybe not following the other advisors that are posting about it. And maybe the, the way the other advisors talk about it doesn't relate or, or make it understandable to them, but yours can be. I think people, like, just because there's other content out there, every piece of content and everything that's ever needed exists already today. And I think so many advisors do see that, so they don't create their own, and then they post everybody else's content. And they're like, great read. It's like, that's not content, you know? Like I, I sit down and I say, hey, advisors, like hey, I've been doing this for six months, doesn't work. Okay, what's your content schedule? Monday, I post a blog post about my blog and you look at it and like I wrote one about HSAs today, but like, like, let's say there says, HSAs are triple tax advantaged, here's what you need to know. Nobody's reading that, right? Like you got no attention from it. Wednesday comes along and they post something that's like, hey, our clients love working with us because we're fiduciaries and put them first and listen. Come check us out for a free consultation. Again, like what? Nobody, nobody. And then Friday is another blog post from somebody else. Great read. You got to check it out. Like again, that's not content, right? That's just putting things out there. You didn't grab anybody's attention. And for me, that was the big realization I had in year one is I reached out to Samantha Russell and I was like, help me. W what can I do better? I know I'm missing something here. And she said, your content is great, but you're missing the hook. Social media is scroll, 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 stop on that great post. The thing that grabbed my attention. Good content is not enough. You need good content plus a way to drive people to want to even read your content. And that's the area I see is the most missed by advisors. I think everybody go follow Rachel Camp. She's the other one that I would say is right there on great content creation. She actually helps me a lot of times on hooks. She is the best at writing Twitter threads that I, I know. She has the best hooks. She has the best frameworks. That is how you get people to read. Like she's grown faster than I've grown. I think maybe I get more clients from it than she does at this point, but I think there's a lot to learn from her. And, and what I did is I went and followed a bunch of really great creators. There's like Salil Bloom and Justin Welsh and a bunch of these other guys and girls and look at their frameworks. Like what are, how are they posting? And then go look at yours. And I have advisors send me certain content like, hey, you might like this. And my piece of advice always is that's a really good post, but your first post is bad. The, the first tweet or the first line of your LinkedIn post or whatever, 
can't just go right into it. You have to tell people why they have to read it and not scroll by or they're gonna, and you can have the best tax post ever written. It could add so much value for people, but if you didn't drive them to open it, it's meaningless. To that point, I want to stay right there. And Rachel Camp, if you're not following her, she's great as well. Sleel Boom and Justin Welsh, I've been following them for a while too. They're great. But what makes a great hook? I think that, I think statistics work really well. I think qualifying who you are works really well. Like sometimes they're the ones of like, you know, I have one where like, I've worked with over a hundred millennial households in the last three years. Many of them have made so many costly mistakes here's the 10 most important that you can avoid. And people are like, oh man, you've kind of draw them in. You didn't tell them what it's about. You told them it's avoidable and they can learn them and skip them right here. Versus like, if you just basically said top 10 mistakes millennials make and you just go into it, people are first of all like, who are you? What are you talking about? So I think that one works or you have ones that are like, you can reduce your tax bill by 50% or, or actually an ESPP one's the easiest, like, you know, Many people love guaranteed returns. Did you know that with ESPPs, you could have a guaranteed 17.65% return? Here's what you need to know about ESPPs. People are like, what? I never even heard of an ESPP. I did not know I could have a guaranteed 17% return. I got to read about this, right? Versus like ESPP plans are very common for publicly traded companies. They are tax advantaged. Here's the details, you know? <laughs> but that's really where most people do it is they just sound like a textbook out of the CFP and like, that's not really how you get people. You need something. And, and different than like news outlets where they just have garbage headlines that have nothing to do with what you're talking about. I don't also think that's the way to do it. I think you just need to make a good hook. And I spend almost as much time on that first post as I do on the entire body or blog post itself or whatever. I've, I've gotten faster at it now, but for a while I would spend 30 to 60 minutes. I'd go to chat GTP and ask for ideas and then I would edit them and I'd take one line from it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Yeah. And that gets into, I, I think that one of your points that you made that I want to just reemphasize is that you, you, you said that your audience isn't following this other content that you're seeing. Like you're like, yeah, everybody's already talking about Roths. Everybody's already talking about ESPPs. Like everybody's already talking about that. Why would I ever say that? Like, I, it goes back to this concept that I always think about, like, everybody's like, hey, I just read this book. It sold 2 million copies. It's a New York Times bestseller. Of course, everybody's read it. Why would I tell anybody the advice that I got from that book? But if you think about it, that's less than 3.75% of the entire world population would have ever read that book if it's 2 million copies. The likelihood that you're going to instill new uh, insight or in a different way is like drastic. That That's a, such an opportunity to do it. So like, Find your unique self and, and express it by saying something in a different way, even though it's the same content. I think that that's so great. But to that point, that seems like really difficult to people, right? And you're just talking about like hooks. You spend more time on hooks than you do on the body. But how long does it take you to write? I mean, you're writing three to five tweets a day. How long does that take you to write this type of content or to write a blog? I, I'm curious on that side. I think I... Um naturally have gotten good at it. Like I was just actually talking with Max Pashman about this on Twitter yesterday, but like, I can't think of the last newsletter that took me more than 30 minutes or the last blog post that took me more than 30 minutes. Cause I'm writing what I know. I write it out done. I come back tomorrow, one edit post. And again, that's me accepting good over great. Like I'm sure that there's better grammatical ways to say it. I'm sure that there's commas that could be in there. I'm sure blah, blah, blah. But what I've realized is that, that actually doesn't make a difference. And the difference to go from good to that last 20% to great takes double to triple the time 
but it actually doesn't make a difference in the eyes of the people that I'm driving to me. So why would I waste my time doing it? So Twitter wise, the nice thing is because I have so much content and my audience is growing so fast that I repurpose a lot of old content, um, like every few months. Like I use a lot of similar posts. I edit a little bit. Sometimes I repost the same one, but like I was on vacation at the last week of January and we were, I was by the pool. I'm like, I don't want to read all day. Like maybe I'll do an hour of content creation a day. So I spent five hours on content creation that week and I'm booked through June of every of three posts every single day on Twitter through then. And a lot of it is repurposing when you post as much as I do and you you've created as much as I do in over the last three years, that is a bank. Like I could probably hire a, a ghostwriter to just keep a system going at all times, but I don't want to, I love doing it. Like that's part, that's me. And I think people love hearing that it is me too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that. So it took you five hours to get six months worth of content. Yeah. Like four, yeah, I'd say like four and a half months yeah. of content basically. And so it ends up being pretty good. And I think when a lot of advisors hear this repurposing idea, they do it wrong. And so like my thought of repurposing is like, I had a great post in January. I had 7,500 followers on January 1st. It's April. I have 13,000 followers. Half my audience hasn't even seen my best post. I got to put it out there. That is very different than I post the same thing on Tuesday morning. I post on Thursday night. I post it two weeks later and I've got, I have four new followers. What you do by that is you just become really boring and that does not work, right? Like you need to repurpose and be intentional with the way that you repurpose, not just post the same things over and over and over again to your audience. Yeah. I think that that's super important. And you know, when you think about your content, how you write content and how you, you know, you talked about your hooks and how you, you learned from, you know, Samantha Russell and Rachel camp, et cetera. But like, when you think about your writing style, and I think that this is something that's so important, like to figure out who your writing style is, but it's always inspired by a lot of people, like how you write and how you develop your content and tell the stories that you do, who, who have been some of those inspirations, you know, those other writers that came before you that have inspired you of how and tailored to how you write and the style that you write in, both for your tweets and for your blog posts and for your newsletters, it's everything of that nature. Is there anybody that comes to mind that you're like, gosh, like that person really just how they wrote, like really inspired me to how I write today? I am a listener. Like I, I listen to tons and tons of podcasts. I'm not as much of like a go read books or blog post type person. I think it's because I can consume significantly more content a day. Like my first three years in the industry, I probably like I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go walk for an hour. I'd listen to a podcast. I would have a break. I would listen to a podcast. I would work out. I'd listen to, I was listening to like three to four podcasts a day. And that's what brought me up to speed really quick. And so maybe that created the way that like I write the way exactly the way I talk. So I don't write formal. I have spacing like in Twitter, like I don't have periods. For example, I'll say something. I'll be like you, I always speak to like you versus in more formal third person writing. And so I think my whole persona is like, okay, anybody who works with me is going to know I'll never wear a suit. Like I'm probably never even going to wear a collared shirt. Like this is about as nice as it gets. Most times I'm wearing a regular t-shirt. I go speak at conferences. I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt and Jordans. And, and so I can't be this bunned up person writing. And then you come here and I'm like different. And so my thing is I'm like super opposite of formal in, in pretty much everywhere. I'm very casual. The way that I'm going to talk with people is going to be very casual. I'm not going to use big words or acronyms. And I want that to be seen in my brand in every single way, which I think is what allows me to be the good versus great because people don't think of my writing that way. Like I think people read my stuff and the goal is like, this is educational. 
nobody is pretending that Thomas is the best for like, I'm not going to go teach a writing class ever. And I was bad at writing my whole life. I've been bad at writing, but I was bad at school writing, but maybe what I'm good at is short form writing. And I'm also writing about a topic I love. And I know so deeply that I just don't think about it. I, I was at a conference. And I was watching the guy next to me. They were like encouraging people to like post on social. And he like typed a tweet, deleted it, typed a tweet like five times. And I'm basically like tweet, send. I don't even think about it. I just put everything out there. Like I've dropped that barrier in my mind of what if people don't like this or whatever? I'm like, oh, whatever, you know, <laughs> nothing needs to be perfect. You can test so much on Twitter, like the amount of posts I can have. And then all I do is whatever posts do well is my post on LinkedIn. I don't even think about it. I spend no time on LinkedIn. I just take what works well and then put it there. What works well on Twitter is more posting. Like I see people say like, you don't need to post every day. And I just don't think that's going to work. And so Twitter is more of like regular thoughts. Like people post way more. LinkedIn is more of like one post a day. I mean, I guess you can do two. I do two sometimes, but I figure that if something works well on Twitter, then I'll just, I just go back from my last week and I find my best post based on impressions, likes, comments. And then I just schedule that out for LinkedIn that week. It takes me five minutes. That's really all I do. I would give up LinkedIn. I really don't care about it, but I think over time, I'll use LinkedIn as more of a channel to advisors in a bunch of companies want me to be like the head of community, kind of like the at altruist role. And so that'll probably be more of a channel I use as I do something like that. And I also do some advisor consulting. I have advisor office hours to try to help give back. And I look at my stats, vast majority of my impressions and, and views and comments are advisors. Twitter is the exact opposite. A vast majority is non-financial related people, which again, to me is, well, then that's where I should spend my time and focus because over here is just more advisors commenting on my posts and call it a day. Yeah, which makes sense. I'm curious, what is the, the toolbox you use, the technology toolbox, your tech stack that you're using to help you kind of manage your content strategy from organizing your content to scheduling it to writing, whatever it may be, like what are, what's that tech stack look like in your world? So I use Notion for like everything. Like I, I look at Tyrone Ross Jr. and they have Notion as everything in their business. I would like to get there because it has so much customization of what we want to do. Notion is where I have all the things I need to do for my clients, all the things I need to do for personal all my content ideas, you know, I'm in there and I have three blog posts that I'm going to write the next three weeks. You know, I have one on 83B elections. I have one today on HSAs. Next one, I'm going to write an ESPP. The next one I'm writing an RSAs. Like I just have that in there. So I use that as my idea area. I use Hype Fury for scheduling Twitter. I think it's a great tool. What I love about it is if I hit compose, it'll bring an old tweet of mine back up and I'll be like, Ooh, I like that. Or nah, that one doesn't go. I don't want to repost that. And so sometimes I'll hit post other times I'll do it or that will come up. I'm like, Ooh, I could rewrite that so much better. I can sort through and look at most of my best tweets. And I can also like look at other people's best ones for impressions too. I could click like best of health and fitness and look and be like, Ooh, that's a great framework. Let me use that for myself and apply it to finance. So I love hype fury. I recommend it to pretty much everybody. I do use chat GTP, not for content creation, but if I'm stuck on a sentence structure, if I'm like, Ooh, I wrote this paragraph. I think it could be better. Hey, help me rewrite this. And I'm like, mm, I like my first line better. Ooh, I like that second line better, but I want to change a couple words. I think it's a really good way to get you through what could be like a heart. Like sometimes when you think of a sentence, all you can rethink through is the exact same one that was in your head. And so I think it helps me get out of that rut. I don't use it that much, but I think that there still are good ways to use it. 
I use ConvertKit for all of our newsletters because I have a prospect newsletter, I have a client newsletter, then we have like an all street prospect newsletter and then I can like segment them out. I have an advisor newsletter where I let people know about office hours and things like that. So all of those can live in there and it's super easy. I would say that those are probably the main, I have my own blog that like, you know, I just created on WordPress. People ask me why I have a blog because I don't really ever post it on Twitter, but I basically write a blog post every week and then that's my thread or I write a thread and I'm like, oh, I'm going to turn that into a blog post. And that way when somebody's like, oh, I remember you wrote something about HSAs, I can send them to my blog, which is way easier than finding the content through Twitter. So that way, like all my main stuff has a main place that people can go and read all of the long ones versus trying to sift through all of the content on Twitter. But I would say I those that. are the main ones that I can think of. Yeah, I love that. It's like the omni-channel approach and you kind of alluded to it right there at the end, right? You let your blogs inspire your tweets, let your tweets inspire your blogs. It's not like you have to create new content for each medium. Each medium should be leveraging the other medium's content so that you're not having to rethink everything. Thomas, this has been an awesome conversation, man. I, I really do appreciate it. I think that you know you have so much insight in terms of how to get people to be attracted to your content, how to deliver value, and you do such a great job. If people aren't following you, they should. I, I want to wrap this up with you know my two questions I tend to ask people. You made a comment, though, that's going to make me kind of pivot one of my questions because I usually ask people, what's that one book that you think everybody should read? But you but said I that do you don't... Answer. I do you have, have an answer. answer. All right, well, then I'm going and, to ask you an extra question. I want okay. that answer, and I want... What's the best podcast that people should be listening to as well? Okay. So book-wise though, even though I, I don't read a lot of books, but the ones that has been the biggest takeaway for me and one that I will reread multiple times is The Psychology of Money. I think that there's so many books about money that's more tactically what to do versus what I love about The Psychology of Money is like most of us view money and the way, how it impacts our life and what actually makes us happy in the wrong way. I think that Morgan Housel, actually, then the podcast. I don't know if you've listened to his new podcast that came out in the last two months, but so like you asked me who I take my writing from, I could never say Morgan Housel because I can't write like him, you know? It'd be cool to. I don't think that's really attainable. He's the person that can put out one blog post a month and grow a massive following because they're that perfect. And I think his podcast goes into a lot of the same principles are in the psychology of money. So it lets you, and we all know that when you read and you hear, you take it in a different way. So I love now consuming it in two different ways. I just don't think anybody explains money better or how to view money, how to make money decisions. So I would say that if it's, um, man, I just, I listen to so many podcasts. That's the hard part is like, <laughs> I, I go through different seasons of life or right now I'm in a season of life where like, I'm not listening to very many money podcasts. If I'm listening to money podcasts, it's actually more from CPAs you know, I went through a really deep route of like trying to learn more about cost seg and bonus depreciation and when to use those. And then, you know, then I'm listening to ones and like taxes for business owners. And I basically am like, what is the topic I'm trying to learn? And I go consume as much as I possibly can on it. But for just a regular consumer that isn't trying to learn just personal finance, I would say those have to be two of the the best for me. And then I like founders. It's, it's what I said on the Altruist podcast too. I think it's really cool to listen of like the story of people's journeys to success because we all have this persona of like Warren Buffett when he's wealthy, but there is pre-Warren Buffett. And I think they do a really good job of the successes and the failures and all these things that people had to help them get there. Because I think my whole life, I viewed people that were successful as having something different about them, whether they had luck, whether they had people who helped them, whether they were just naturally smarter. And then the one thing that I found is it's actually not that it's, it's truly who will work the hardest and, and do it. And that's why for me, when I talk about this content, people are like, why do you give away all your secrets? 
And to me, I don't think they're really secrets. I think they're frameworks and they still require somebody to do them. And, and that's really the hard part is the execution. And if you look at high performers and successful people, the one thing they all have is execution. Yeah. Yeah. So true. And the founders that, that concept of like, you always think that they just came into it and like the same thing that I was alluding to in that question, like everybody's like, well, you know, just by tweeting, I'm going to have 2.1 million impressions. Like, that's not it. You've no. worked your ass off to get to that point. And you had a lot of challenges along the way. And like, I love that perspective. Well, and I think uh, to uh, add to that, to go back the when I first was like lukewarm on Twitter, while I was like mostly focused on LinkedIn, like the first year, I mean, I got to, maybe I got like a couple hundred followers and I had like 800,000 impressions. So not good, but not terrible, but that was 2021. Then I go to 2022 and I had like seven and a half, which I felt really good about. I was like, man, you know, I went, I was getting per month what I got there. And then I was like, man, I just hope I get around that again this year. And then this year I have more than that already this year. I probably have almost 10 million just in this calendar year. And so then people look at content and everybody always says impressions don't matter and followers don't matter, which is true. If you have the wrong, a 10 person, 10,000 person audience that is engaged and, and chose to follow you is way better than a hundred thousand that you got from buying followers or paying for retweets or whatever, because they're not going to be the right ones. But somebody that built their own audience of a hundred thousand versus 10, you cannot argue that that won't be a better thing for their business. If I want to grow, and when I'm in rapid growth, which is right now at three households a month I'm taking on, and I get 2.1 million impressions, that's a super low conversion rate of who needs to book a meeting and become a client. If that keeps going up, all it means is conversion can keep going down. And to me, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I love that. Last question. We talked about a ton here, man. I, and we could probably talk for hours more. I could learn so much more from you. I mean, I think I've got another few pages of questions that I could ask. But you know, what's what's one of those actionable takeaways that you think from all that we've talked about, or maybe something that we didn't talk about, but you think that listeners could take away and like put into place tomorrow yeah. and become better? What would be one of those actionable takeaways you hope someone takes from this conversation? Yeah, so it'll probably be a couple steps and one piece of advice though. So my biggest advice is like, I look at most people and most people are looking to get started. And so everybody gets excited. They're launching their own firm or they're gonna start in their content and they're gonna have a podcast, a blog, a newsletter. They're gonna post on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Scrap all of that. Like that is just not the way to do it. All that's gonna happen is you're just gonna be super average at all of them. And if you look at all the successful advisors on social, they own one channel. So figure out who you're going to work with, figure out where they're going to live, focus on that one channel. And if you want to repurpose to one other, maybe that's fine. But understand the way that you post on each platform is different. So it does take some education to learn what that looks like. So do that and then pick one long form you like. So don't do the blog, the podcast, whatever. And, and you don't necessarily have to pick the one you think is going to lead to the best results because let's say that you are uh, great and talking and a podcast is going to be better for you or videos are going to be better for you, but you think a blog is better. Don't pick the blog because you think it's better because you're going to burn out before you get any results from it. And th that's not going to lead to the best results for you. So own the one that is going to be fun for you to do and not going to be the biggest headache. Get good at that, expand and add the next thing. And when you're struggling with content ideas, just go to your ideal client. I mean, like, just think about the questions they asked you in the last meeting. Every client meeting, you're gonna have multiple questions. And if they're asking it, many other people are asking it. And then that's where you start with your content. I love that. Thomas Kopelman, 
you're the man. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people that if they're not following you, they should be following you or they're going to want to follow you and engage with you. What's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? I, I assume I know one area, but let's know your handle. Uh, yeah. Where else can they engage with you outside of Twitter? So Twitter is just at T Copelman. I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn, but the other thing is I do have advisors office hours where I do one Friday every month. I have like 200 some advisors on that. We probably get 50 plus per time we do it. So what I've learned is, you know, I want to help a lot of advisors. One-on-ones are too hard with the amount of requests, but I found group learning to actually be the best because some people don't know the questions to ask. And so we can add and help a lot of people through those Friday meetings. Love that. Thomas Copeland. Thank you, man. Keep up awesome work and keep being an inspiration for this industry. I know you are to me and I hope you are to others. So thanks so much for your time, man. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 